Hello, folks. Welcome back to the show. It's Maddie and Ethan here for another episode of the Vine to Mind podcast. And we are so glad to be back. And today we have a really fun topic to mm-hmm. talk about. We're talking about a place that Maddie and I absolutely love to drink the wines from, and that is going to be a Montalcino, Italy. We hope you enjoy. All right, Ethan, it is what? It's 11 a.m. here um, in Napa, and you and I have been up for a long time. Yeah, it feels like it's like 6 p.m. Early bird gets the worm. Yeah. Uh, today, everybody, Ethan and I had the opportunity to go do an early morning visit at one of our vineyard sites. And so, of course, knowing us being extremely big wine geeks, we take every opportunity we can for something like this. So it's been an early morning. But Ethan, it was one of those days where I just consider myself so fortunate to get to live in this beautiful place because driving up, it's pitch black. You know, it's kind of one of those things. Got my cup of coffee in hand, just kind of like barely making my way to work in the morning, which maybe not the most safe thing. But either way, I'm driving up the valley and it is just surreal. You see these headlights that are just planted in all these different vineyards and harvest workers are going, you know, so fast and they're harvesting all these grapes before the sun is rising here in Napa. And the sun is starting to rise behind. You can see the outline of the mountains coming through. It's just beautiful. And, you know, that's the one great thing about coming out and visiting regions like Napa Valley or some of the other amazing wine regions is that, you know, you kind of just think of wine of just like a glass of fermented grape juice, you know, a delicious glass of of fermented juice. But you come out here and understand how challenging and time-consuming the winemaking process is. I mean, they're getting up, what, we are complaining that we got up at like 4.30 in the morning. (laughs) I got up at 4 and sat in bed and was on Instagram for a half an hour. So we'll say 4.30. these people are getting up at like 11.30 p.m. to get to their vineyard, maybe 1,500 feet up in elevation, to harvest these grapes by hand. In the place that we were at today, I couldn't imagine harvesting that without being like strapped into a harness because <laughs> that's a steep slope that they're harvesting. Yeah, no kidding. I know. It's pretty amazing what these workers are doing. And then you know, by the time we get to the winery, they're already sorting out grapes. So uh, the process is obviously never ending. But um, just you know, for those of you that haven't been out to Napa here in a little while, just give you a brief rundown on how things are going. Um, at this point in time, I mean, harvest is well underway. I mean, for some producers, it's, it's already finished at this yeah. point. But um, overall, you know, from what I've been hearing around the valley, things are looking pretty good. The fruit's coming in and it's looking really good quality. Of course, as you all know, we're in a pretty bad drought here in California and definitely up here in Napa. So across the board, yields are a little bit lower, but that also means there's there's a little more concentration. So the quality, I think we're going to be looking really good here for 2021. There's going to be a lot less wine made, but like Maddie said, the wines that are produced are going to be phenomenal a great way to bounce back from last year i am so much looking forward to these being released and you're right maddie september and into october is like prime red grape time for harvest you know all the sparkling houses they're definitely done because you pick your grapes for sparkling wine much earlier in the season Mm -hmm. so they're a lot more rich with acidity instead of sugar then whites and then light-bodied reds get picked but then these calves these merlots ballbacks these late ripening grapes this is prime time for them so it's kind of fun to be driving up and down this valley and the the, the craziest hours we could imagine and seeing these grapes get harvested because this is like the king of the valley is being picked right now it sure is i know i know and time will tell i mean it's going to be a little while before we're drinking the the 2021 reds uh Except for, you know, what you know what's actually coming out in probably, I don't know, month, month and a half or so? Beaujolais Nouveau. 
Oh, we're gonna have to do a whole other episode on that. I think so. I think so. So that'll be the first 2021 wine. Um, and then hopefully what Sauvignon Blanc isn't too far behind. So, uh, we'll see. We'll see. I know we've talked about this before. We're going to talk about it again, but being a wine lover and a wine geek as we are, Thanksgiving is one of the best holidays um because i love light-bodied reds i think at this point folks you probably think i love all wines there are a fair share of wines that i i am not too fond of but yes i love most wines but light-bodied wines with a bunch of different types of foods like cranberry sauce and sweet potato casserole my absolute favorite i think beaujolais nouveau is just a classic example wine that pairs well with everything i can't wait I know. Plus my birthday's it's, around there too. So. That, that is true. What well, was a few years ago? Your birthday was Thanksgiving. Yeah, it happens every once in a while. Yeah. yeah it's yeah. a good way to have turkey Special on my day. birthday. Turkey and Beaujolais Nouveau. That is what <laughs> Ethan does. That's awesome. All right. Well, shall we get into it? I think we shall. All right. So today we are going to be talking about this beautiful, historic, medieval looking hill in Tuscany, Italy. And folks, if you haven't been to Tuscany before, it is absolutely stunning it is beautiful i do want to retire there someday maddie i hope you meet me out there at some point but tuscany is home to a lot of history involving Mm -hmm. italy one the beautiful city of florence is there siena pisa it's all there as well but you go into the southwestern countryside of tuscany is we find this little hill the town of Montalcino, which is actually situated in between the tyrrhenian coast and the alpenine mountain range Yeah, I mean, Tuscany, Ethan, like you were saying, it is just gorgeous. This is actually the first wine region I ever visited before I even came out to Napa. So uh, very special, very beautiful, especially Montalcino. But before we dive into Montalcino, I think it's important for us to just talk a little bit about Tuscany and paint the picture. Um, I'm sure most of you all listening here today are familiar with Tuscany, whether it's from watching Under the Tuscan Sun at some point in time. Or also even, you know, going to Florence or going to see the Leaning Tower of Pisa or Siena and doing a little day trip to the beautiful vineyards all throughout Tuscany. And this area has such a rich history. When you think of notable wine regions around the world, one of the first that comes to your mind is Tuscany. And when we think about Italian history, chances are you're probably thinking about the Roman Empire, which of course that goes back quite a ways, but we're going to go back even pre-Roman times to the Etruscans. And they were the very first to really produce wine in this region. And they actually started sending wine to other parts of Italy and other Mediterranean countries when they were producing it here. Now, the wine they're making, of course, at this point in time was just really just table wine, just kind of your basic wine. But there was a turning point in the 1800s. We're going to fast forward here. In 1872, one of the prime ministers of Italy recommended that Sangiovese should become the dominant grape in Chianti. Chianti became a classic region within Tuscany. And the Chianti Classica region to this day is still the original Chianti location. And so in the 1800s, Sangiovese started being planted all throughout this region. And actually, we'll talk about it a little bit later here, but Sangiovese is now the most widely planted grape in all of Italy. But especially here in Tuscany, vines were being planted right and left. And as you can imagine with that, over the course of several years, a lot of the quality kind of started going down. I think we can all remember going to the store or maybe going to your grandparents' house and they always had a bottle of that Chianti that was in the basket on the table, right? It was just kind of simple, basic table wine. And of course, there's nothing wrong for that with that. That's, you know, there's a time and a place for that. However, 
you know, post-World War II, they wanted to bring a little bit more quality. And especially the 50s and the 60s, they started focusing on that. The Chianti region has spread now. There are seven sub-zones, sub-regions of Chianti, in addition to the original, the Chianti Classico region. Within Tuscany too, there's other really notable wines that are produced. Um, you know, oftentimes we talk about the super Tuscan wines with producers such as Sasakaya or mm. Tianello, and they're blending Bordeaux varieties in the Sangiovese wine and making a pretty much a larger, bolder style of these Italian wines. Now, going back to that little hill, Montalcino, you know, red winemaking, there's evidence dating back to the early 14th century but no one really knew about it. Again, Mm -hmm. people just making it for their own consumption. And remember, folks, back in the day, people made wine because it was safer to drink than the bacteria-filled water. Now, at the same time, Chianti and Chianti Classico became so popular in Italy and on the international market, there was a gentleman named Clemente Santi of Tenuta Greppo's Biondi Santi. Hopefully some of you have heard of it. <laughs> if you have not, you'll definitely have to get a bottle after this podcast. And in the mid-1860s, he was actually the one that isolated this clone that they still use today, a clone of Sangiovese called the Brunello clone. He was also the first to vinify the Sangiovese grape alone by itself in Chianti and in Chianti Classico still to this day. They often blend other grape varieties. Here, by law, it's 100%. We'll get into this a little bit later. And this really started with Biondi Santi. He's making it by itself. He truly believed that he could make a high-quality beverage from just Sangiovese alone. He was also the only commercial producer in this area until World War II, which is pretty remarkable. And after that, even in the 1960s, there was only 11 producers making wine for commercial output, which is pretty significant. But his wines actually caught some attention, especially in the late 1800s, in the 1880s, he made the first Brunello Reserva Mm -hmm. because he was putting his wine in wooden barrels, which is also kind of uncommon back in the day. Often producers making Sangiovese and Chianti were using concrete vats or other vessels to make their wines. But Biondi Santi was using barrels. People started to love his wines, and many people didn't want other people to know as well. And that's why popularity didn't grow for a very long time because they wanted to keep their little secret to themselves. Now, the appellation itself and becoming a DOC occurred in the late 1960s. While it took some time for the production to take off, the quality was always there, always there, and the wines were always pretty phenomenal. 1970s, there was a large expansion of plantings too because a lot more people started to catch on. Some big names started to move into this area that are still there and dominate a lot of vineyards to this day. And then in 1980, along with Barolo, Brunello de Montalcino, a wine being made on this beautiful little hill in southwestern countryside Tuscany, became one of the first DOCGs in all of Italy. And that's one thing, Ethan, that I just think is really remarkable and really stands out about Montalcino. Because I just gave this pretty extensive history with Tuscany going back, you know, pre-Roman times, right? Where they've been making wine here. Whereas in Montalcino, they really have only been making wine, you know, really since, you know, like the 1800s, the mid-1800s or so. And nobody really caught on. It was kind of like no man's land out there, right? Like nobody really knew about this amazing hill and why this makes it so unique in the wine styles there. And then all of a sudden, it's kind of like word got out in the 60s 
and boom, next thing you know, it's the one of the very first DOCGs in Italy. And some of the most beautiful age-worthy wines in Italy are produced right here. You're absolutely right, Maddie. Now, like I said, there were 11 producers in the 1960s. There's 250 now. Isn't that remarkable, Maddie? Yeah. Look at that growth. That's not that long ago. There's nearly 9,000 acres of vineyard land and 5,000 acres that are dedicated to the production of the highest quality designation, Brunello de Montalcino. It was actually funny. There were actually more Muscat or Muscadello grapes planted there back in the day than there was Sangiovese. But <laughs> once people caught on that Sangiovese does, especially the Brunello clone, does very well on this hill, they were grafted over. But there's still actually some um, appellations in the area that respect the tradition. So there actually is one DOC called Muscadello di Montalcino, <laughs> which is a wine, a white wine made from Muscat in this hill too. I think the producers also probably realize that they can make a little bit more money making uh, Brunello. Definitely. <laughs> um, awesome. So that really, I think that can kind of like paints a picture of this land and how Montalcino really came to be. So let's talk about why it's unique, right? Should yeah. we talk about what the climate first? Um, so like Ethan said, we are, of course, are located within Tuscany. Um, we are just in the southern part of the Tuscan countryside, so south of the Chianti Classica region. Now, Chianti does have these sub seven subregions um, throughout Chianti production, and one of them is right around the town of Siena, so Colisinesi. And actually, Montalcino overlaps with this subzone too, just to kind of paint the picture of where we are. Um, but here in Montalcino, we do experience a warm Mediterranean climate. Um, climate, honestly, is somewhat similar to what we experience here in California. So you're going to have a um, dry, sunny growing season for the most part. Um, and you're going to have your rainy season typically in um, the winter time there. And so the grapes are able to receive ample sunshine to fully ripen. Um, the interesting thing about Tuscany or about Montalcino is that this is the driest and the warmest part of all of Tuscany, which allows for the grapes to fully ripen, reaching optimal ripeness and flavor in the grapes. Um, I mean, some years, even Ethan, the Brunello grapes can ripen a week before Chianti and the Montalcino region. That explains why, you know, sometimes when we're drinking a Brunello de Montalcino, Maddie, the alcohol content's 14 14 and a half percent alcohol. That's, That's true. pretty remarkable. That's different than Chianti. Yeah, definitely higher ripeness. And another unique factor is the Monte Amiata, which is essentially, it's like a volcanic dome or a large mm -hmm. hill that's just to the west of this area. So it helps provide almost like a rain shadow, a little bit of rain protection from this area. So again, you don't have to worry about any moisture during the growing season necessarily, because sometimes that can lead to, you know, fungal diseases um, and things that you really don't want to worry about with that. And the elevation varies slightly as well. Like you said, Ethan, this is, it's essentially one hill. So you have vines that are planted on top of the hill, kind of on the middle ground and down on the lowlands as well. These are definitely going to impact the styles of wine that you're going to be making. And of course, there's similarities between all the Brunellos in the area or all of the, the wines produced in the area. But I like to think of it kind of like even here in Napa Valley, typically on the highlands, maybe on the mountainsides here in Napa, you get more structured wines, right? Maybe the soils aren't quite as fertile. The vines have to work a little bit harder. Sometimes even get more sunlight. So more structure to these wines, maybe even more age-worthy. 
And then we also have kind of the middle ground in between. So the mid mountain, a little bit further down from the top of the hill, right? And this is kind of the best of both worlds, kind of a mix of the higher ground and the lowlands that we'll talk about here in a minute. Um, so you'll have a little bit more approachable, maybe a little richer in style, but still have some nice structure to these wines. And finally, we'll have the lowlands at the base of the hill, lower elevation here. Typically, the soils are a little bit more fertile. The wines will be a little bit more approachable, maybe riper styles as well. So, Maddie, I want to talk about the wine produced on this hill. Yes. Okay. And there's a few different appellations that are within or around the hill of Montalcino, but the most significant one, the one that you've probably all seen, is going to be Brunello di Montalcino. Mm -hmm. And just like every other high-quality appellation or designated area of wine growing in Italy— there are a lot of rules and regulations that go into making these wines to ensure that the quality is guaranteed. So Brunello de Montalcino has to be produced from 100% Sangiovese. However, it must use the Brunello clone, also known as Sangiovese Grosso. And this, this grape clone of Sangiovese is known to have thicker skins. It's also going to be a larger berry, and it's going to possess a lot more tannin and actually have higher acidity as well. And that does benefit from the high elevations and its large diurnal shift. The wines that are made here are meant to be age-worthy. Brunello mm -hmm. de Montalcinos can age for a very long time in the bottle before being mature enough to drink. And these wines are so sophisticated and so complex with so many layers of depth to them, with a lot of primary, a lot of secondary, and these beautiful tertiary aromatics when they're released. They're amazing wines, and they go well with a variety of different cuisines. At this point, you guys know that Ethan and I like pretty much all the same wines. So yes, I'm right there with you, Ethan. These are beautiful wines. And they're very age-worthy, like you were saying. Um, and one of the reasons is, is because these wines are oftentimes, or they are aged for quite some time before they are released. By law, in order to be Brunello di Montalcino, they have to be aged for a minimum of five years. Two of those years have to be in oak barrels. For the Reserva, if you see Reserva on the label, that's a minimum of six years, three years in oak. And, you know, historically, traditionally, they used to age these wines in Slovenian oak. Uh, but sometimes this could be very tannic um, and it would just be a little austere. So typically today, you're starting to see um, some French oak being used. Sometimes it's all neutral oak. There's not a lot of new oak influence. Sometimes there might be a little bit of sprinkled in, but for the most part, this is just going to prolong the aging time of these wines as they start to see a little bit more oxygen slowly early on in their lifespan. Maddie, there's actually another appellation as well for some of the producers that are like, you know what? I have younger vines and I don't want to age this wine for such a long time before I'm allowed to legally sell it. So I'm going to designate my wine as Rosso de Montalcino. And I'm telling you folks, these are some of the best bang for your buck because there's not a lot of Rosso de Montalcino being produced. You would think it would be because it takes a lot shorter of time to make it, but you only have to age it for a year to mm -hmm. release it as Rosso de Montalcino. They're phenomenal. Again, they're usually using younger vines compared to the Brunello, which is using much older vines, more complex vines. So these are a lot more uh, fruit forward per se but they're still incredible. And it's great for producers to have this option to, you know, like you said, younger vines, put it under this Rosso di Montalcino. Now this is a DOC, it's not a DOCG. However, like you were saying, some really quality wines um, coming from this appellation. 
All right, so now at this point, folks, we have talked about the history. We've talked about why Montalcino is a really renowned region for great production. We've talked about Brunello de Montalcino, Rosso de Montalcino. We've kind of touched on Sangiovese, but I think we need to shine a light a little bit more on this grape because it's one of those grapes. It's the most widely planted grape in all of Italy. I think it accounts for about 10% of all the vines planted, which is a very sizable amount, but it's a grape that you don't see a whole lot of outside of Italy. You're starting to see some planted in, you know, various areas. And for sure, there's some, there's some decent styles, but I feel like the Italians have really mastered this. It's kind of like Nebbiolo. That's kind of like a lot of Italian grape varieties actually for that matter. And now Sangiovese also has a reputation of being a little bit difficult in the vineyard, meaning that there's a number of things you have to take into account while this grape is growing. For one, it buds early, which makes it a little bit more prone to late spring frost. It also takes a while for it to ripen. So it's a late ripener, and sometimes this can be affected by the autumn rains as well. Now, it is a thin skin grape variety, and you can totally see this whenever you're drinking a Sangiovese. If you were to hold that glass at an angle with a white background underneath, you should be able to read right through. That is a characteristic of a thin skin rather than like a Cabernet Sauvignon where you cannot read through that whatsoever because Cab has a very thick skin to the grape, um, similar to that of, you know, Pinot Noir. However, if you were to compare this to a Pinot, while the color might look somewhat similar being a thin skin grape, Pinot Noir typically has medium minus to low tannins. They're silky, they're smooth. Whereas Sangiovese, it's a little bit more aggressive with the tannins. It's going to be you know, medium plus to high tannins, and you're probably going to want some food with it because of that. Well, the Italians typically will have longer macerations to extract some of this color because there are, there is not that much color on the, with the grape skins. And so longer extractions means more color development in the wine, but also you're going to get higher tannins, which will definitely make more of an age worthy wine as well. The wines are absolutely phenomenal produced from Sangiovese. And that saying in the wine world that you know, what grows together goes together, you can pick up on a lot of that and understand that when you're drinking a wine like a Brunello de Montalcino. You know, oftentimes you're going to get this like sour cherry, ripe raspberry, but you also get like tomato leaf. Well, what grows throughout Tuscany? Tomatoes, herbs. I get a lot of thyme, a little bit like oregano in that wine as well. I feel like I'm describing an Italian dish, Mm -hmm. but no, I am describing an Italian wine, a beautiful Italian wine, and it makes sense why it pairs so well with food. And having the elevated tannin and the elevated acidity makes it a fun wine, not just to age, but to have with a variety of cuisine, as I mentioned earlier. So folks, you should look out for some of these beautiful Brunello de Montalcinos. They're not hard to find. By law, they have to be in Bordelais bottles, so you will definitely recognize even just the bottle shape. But there are really two camps of producers nowadays. And you'll notice similarities when, if you dive into learning about Barolo or Barbaresco, same thing happened in Brunello. So there are some producers that are really traditionalists, using the large barrels, long extractions, aging for a long time, and producing these really unique wines with a lot of earthy and tertiary characteristics. Producers like we mentioned, Biondi Santi still does that. Then we have more modern producers nowadays that are using the smaller barrels and the shorter macerations, even playing around with you know newer oak producing a more approachable in its youth style of wine. Producers like Casanova Neri. And then you have some producers that are like right in the middle. And those are my absolute favorites. One, one of my absolute favorites producers is going to be Sam Polo. They make one that's a kind of a 
the balance between the traditionalist with the earth and the herbaceousness and the modernist where it's more approachable, it's floral, it's fruity, it's a perfect wine, and I just can't talk enough about it. I really hope after listening to this podcast, you all get a chance to go grab a bottle of the San Polo Brunello di Montalcino. Well, hopefully you all have a greater appreciation and understanding for this wonderful region of Montalcino. Drink some more wines coming from here. But Ethan, I think right now we are well overdue for our nightcap. Oh, Maddie, I agree. And I am so excited to talk about this one. (laughs) Yes, me too. So last night we had our tasting group. We're in a tasting group every week. And Ethan, thank you again. You picked some amazing wines to blind taste the group on. Um, It was a great tasting. But then afterwards, we had one of our friends bring a nice surprise that we were not expecting. It's one of the benefits of living out here is when a buddy shows up with, hey, hey, I have a bottle of Penfold's Grange. Yeah, 2014. That was pretty remarkable. I have never actually seen a bottle of it before. I don't think I have either. And, you know, obviously Penfolds, I think it's just, it's a well-known name. If you know of any producers in Australia, chances are it's Penfolds, right? They make a whole array of wines um, from some pretty, you know, inexpensive wines to some of the most expensive wines really in Australia, like that really are on the world stage. And Grange is is probably the most notable. So for those of you that aren't familiar with this wine, um, it is 100% Shiraz coming from Australia, specifically South Australia. The interesting thing about this, and I learned this last night, um, is that this is a multi-regional wine, meaning that the grapes are not single vineyard. It's not even one specific region, but they'll actually make Shiraz from different vineyards all over the place. And they have all their winemaking team come together and they do blind tastings. They are not told where the Shiraz is coming from and they are tasting and they are blending and they do not find out where that wine came from until they have their final wine. It was another epiphany moment for me sipping that wine. I'm not afraid to say this. This is one of the best wines I've ever had. It is the creme de la creme. There's even a vintage of it that was made that was considered one of the best wines to ever be made on planet Earth. Mm-hmm. All worth the hype. It really is. Oh, it was phenomenal. It was absolutely phenomenal. And I know we both enjoy Syrah. Um, and I think typically when we think of Syrah, we're thinking of Northern Rhone. I, for the most part, if yeah. I'm going to you know buy a bottle, it's going to be Northern Rhone. Nothing against Shiraz. I really just personally don't drink a lot of Australian Me wine. Either. And a lot of times I feel like Shiraz is just known to be jammy, it's ripe, high in alcohol, and covered with a lot of American oak. But this one here, it was so beautiful. And it did, it definitely had some American oak. So you get that kind of toasty vanilla, slight dill character, but in the best way possible. I agree. And like you said, like we love Northern Rhone Shiraz. They're typically big wines, but on the palate, they're very lean, you know? The Shirazes can be big and heavy and sometimes overwhelming, but this was big. It was strong, but it was so elegant and smooth at the same time. Mm-hmm. I mean, really, I, I'm kind of lost for, for words. I want another bottle of it. I know, granted, it's $800 a bottle retail, <laughs> so I'm not going to find a bottle of it anytime soon, but we have some good friends. Yeah, absolutely. We definitely are blessed. And it makes me want to appreciate some more wines from the Southern Hemisphere. Because I feel like sometimes I, I can often neglect those when I'm when I'm buying a bottle at the shop or when I'm planning to drink with dinner. But I've had some great wines from Chile. I mean, luckily my girlfriend has opened my eyes to some of these wines, some wines from Argentina that are hard to find. But even like you know, South Africa is sure. making still making some phenomenal, phenomenal wines. Australia, as you mentioned. I mean, this is definitely like 
the cream of the crop of Australian wine. And it shows when you have a glass of it. Absolutely. I'd love to see an older vintage as well. Absolutely. (laughs) Well, so folks, maybe you'll start seeing some more Southern Hemisphere wines in the future nightcaps. Um, If you ever had the Grange, you got to let us know. Um, It truly was a very special evening. And drink more Syrah. Drink more wines from Montalcino, Italy. You know what, folks? Just drink more wine. Sounds good to me. Thanks for joining us. 